couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as our Savior. So the phrase he came up with is that Jesus is our Savior, Jesus is our sanctifier, Jesus is our healer, and Jesus is our coming King. Okay? So Jesus as our Savior is the very first thing. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And basically what it is, is that Jesus is the only way to God. So we live in a culture that tells us that there are many paths to God, uh, many different faiths that lead you to the same place. But Jesus, throughout the New Testament, claimed to be the only way to God, the only way to life and to true happiness and true contentment in this world. And so we firmly believe that Jesus is our Savior, the only way to God. And tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus as our sanctifier. Uh, That means that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, or the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, he lives in us and also lives through us. So that in everything we do, our, our attitudes, our expressions, our, the words that we say are the actions that we take, that those things are the very things that Jesus would do uh, in our world. So we respond in the way that Jesus would respond. Uh, we also believe that Jesus is our healer. We believe that, that, that Jesus can heal people today miraculously. So someone who could be very ill can be miraculously healed by God. Uh, so we firmly believe that God can work today. Now, there are some people who say that that doesn't happen, that people don't get healed today, that, that the miraculous work that Jesus did in the New Testament, we don't see that today. Uh, so there are people who would say that, but we firmly believe that he's still at work today. Uh, and then finally, the last part of that is that Jesus is our coming king. So we believe at some point in the future that Jesus is going to come back. Uh, if you remember uh, over the Christmas time, sometimes we read uh, some of these passages from Isaiah chapter 9 and 11 that talk about this kingdom that's coming where there's going to be peace. Uh, there's uh, an image it uses there that uh, the lion is going to lay with the lamb. So you know if you put a lamb in the same cage as a, as a lion, the lion is probably going to kill the lamb. And so the picture is, is that the lion laying with the lamb is that there's going to be peace. Uh, it's going to be peace that maybe we're not going to be able to imagine. Uh, it's going to be peace that's going to go on forever and forever. There's going to be justice, perfect justice. Uh, in our world. And so uh, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to bring about this kingdom that's going to go on forever and forever. Now, for some of us, we may not be able to imagine that because we're finite people. We've got finite minds. We can't think about something going on forever and forever. But that's what Jesus is going to do when he comes back. And so those are the four things that really make up what we believe. Uh, And so today we're going to talk about Jesus as our sanctifier. And so like we always do, We're going to start out with a question uh, as we get started with all of this. Now, this question might seem kind of vague, but you can answer it as best you want. You don't don't take uh, a whole lot of time answering it. Uh, How do you usually respond to things that happen to you? So uh, that's a question I'm going to give to everybody, and you can answer. You can throw out your answer. It could be a couple words, or it could be maybe five words, but no longer than Two sentences. So how do you usually respond to things that happen to you? Good things or bad things? Or... That, that's, yeah, whatever you want to say in your answer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anybody else? How do you respond to things that happen to you? That could be good or bad. Now, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Anybody else? How do you respond to things that happen to you, whether good or bad? Anybody else? Couple more. Okay. If it's it's good. Okay. I think because I've been Christian so long, I I, I think I usually think, you know, 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> Anybody else? One more. What do you? How do you? How do you usually respond to things that happen to you, good or bad? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So basically what we're bringing up is that there are, and I wanted to leave it open because I, you know, you bring up yourself like what I'm actually going to go into. Uh, but it always depends. Our response to things that happen to us usually depends on the type of thing that happens to us, whether it's a good thing or whether it's a bad thing that happens to us. Now, if it's a good thing that happens to us, we usually don't have any problem uh, with how we respond. Usually, our response correlates to the good thing that's happened. So it's usually a positive thing. And so say someone in your family has a baby, right? No matter what circumstances surround the birth of the baby, uh, new life coming into the world is very exciting. So you're, you're happy for the other person. Or if it's you, you're very joyful that you're, you're having a kid. And so the response uh, equals exactly what happened, what's happening to you. Now, if you get a, a new job or you get a promotion or you get a raise, I mean, you usually respond in a good way. I, I don't see anybody complaining when they get more, start making more money, uh, unless maybe you complain if you start making more money. But usually, we, our response is proper. Uh, it's a proper response. We're happy that we're making more money. And so if it's a good thing, there's usually not a problem with how we respond. Now, it's usually on the other end of things where we usually have a problem in our responses to those things. Now, when I say bad things here, uh, I'm not necessarily referring to like evil things that happen to you. But really what I want to focus on are like sort of those irritating things that happen to you. Those things that get on your nerves, those things that, that, that make you want to like hit somebody because of something they've done to you. Uh, again, that's not an evil thing, uh, but just things that are irritating to you. Now, say, for instance, maybe at your work. Maybe there's a, a lazy coworker. Uh, maybe they don't always do their job. And so you get upset on the inside. You think of things you'd like to do to them because they're not doing their job. If they would just get their act together, then everything would just be okay. Uh, maybe you're at the grocery store. You know, someone is taking their time sitting in front of uh, the eggs and they're looking at their coupons, trying to figure out which thing that they should buy. Now, if that sounds really like specific, that happens to me all the time. I just happen to end up at the egg section where somebody really old is looking at coupons in front of the eggs and is taking their time. So I have to circle all the way around to come back later on to the eggs when they're done. Uh, but one place I think that we can all we all have in common where our response is really kind of terrible uh, is usually when we're on the road. Because the road, when you're driving, people driving around you are probably the most irritating people probably in each and every one of our lives. Uh, so the other day I was on Cave Mill, which is um, kind of a, well, Scott, right off of Scottsville, so it's very kind of busy sometimes. And so I'm one of three cars stuck behind this white van and you know, speed limit there is 35 and this guy's going 20 uh, in the line there. And so one guy that right behind him decides to speed around him, and it's a double yellow line, so it's illegal to do that. And so he speeds around him, and now it's only me and another car stuck behind him. But as I get closer, I look at the back of the white van, and there's this huge dent in the back of it. And so I begin to wonder. I'm getting frustrated because I hate when people go really slow. So I, pro- I started thinking to myself, I mean, that guy probably deserved it, right? He probably deserved getting this dent in the back of his van, you know? Someone decided just to give him a little push, and so he started going a little faster. And so, and then I started thinking, well, he's probably like really old. He's probably like in his 50s or something. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But as I, as we got, you know, he turned off and we started passing him and he actually was really, really old, probably shouldn't be driving. But yet that points to the fact 
that a lot of us get really irritated with some things that happen, especially when we're driving on the road, when we're at the grocery store, with just people in general. Uh, we, we get irritated. Our responses are actually not very good with those irritating things that happen uh, in our lives. And so again, usually, uh, in either case, whether it's a good or bad thing, uh, you know, sometimes there's a physical response that we actually have. Uh, and then a lot of times there's also an inward response that happens. So maybe the things that you think about or the emotions that you have when things happen to you, whether good or or bad. And now each of us, I I think we all generally try to be good people. Uh, We try not to hurt somebody else. We don't try to kill anybody, steal from somebody. We don't try to defame other people. And so usually when irritating things happen to us, we may not like physically do anything against somebody else. But we maybe have other responses that happen inwardly, things that happen internally. You know, maybe we want to have a burst of anger. Maybe there are certain things we want to say to somebody else. Uh, There's a lot of things going on in our minds and in our hearts when irritating things happen in our lives. Now, I should clarify that like a lot of these feelings that we do have, I think it's an indicator that we are human. Uh, you know, that there are things that actually irritate us. There are things that get on our nerves. There are things that cause us to make a, a, another a response that maybe if people knew what we were wanting to do or thinking about doing, that they may not look very highly at us. Uh, they may look down upon us for, for trying to want, or wanting to say those types of things or wanting to act out in that certain way. Now, Jesus even talked about sort of the inward attitudes that we have or the inward emotions, or the inward things in our hearts and in our minds that we want to do, or the things that we want to say. Uh, you know, whenever he gave a Sermon on the Mount, he gave sort of a, another way to look at the Old Testament law. Now, when the Old Testament law was given, it was given from God to Moses. And they prohib- it prohibited a lot of very physical things, things that you couldn't do. So you couldn't lie, you couldn't steal, you couldn't uh, commit adultery, you couldn't uh, have any other gods before Yahweh God. Uh, you couldn't, uh, there were a bunch of, there are six other uh, com- uh, commandments that, that, that he lists there uh, that they couldn't do. So these are very physical things. But when Jesus came and talked to us about a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he talked about the inward things that happened within us. So he talked about lust. Now, lust doesn't necessarily mean have to be a physical thing. It's something that occurs in our own minds and in our own hearts. And he tells us that if we are to, that, that, that you don't have to physically have sexual relations with somebody else to commit adultery. That in your own mind, if you lust after a woman or you lust after a man, you are in a sense committing adultery against that person. He also said that you're basically killing your brother or killing your friend uh, when you're angry at them in your mind. So you don't have to physically do anything uh, for, uh, for, for, something, uh, for some other response to sort of swell up inside of you. Uh, a, a response that maybe you shouldn't have to things that happen to you. Now Jesus also talked about how whatever it is that we accumulate on the outside is a big indicator of the things that are going on on the inside. The things that our, hearts desi- our heart desires are the very things that our, mind, uh, our, our minds are sort of set on. And so Jesus really challenged uh, our inward desires, our inward uh, passions, our inward emotions, our attitudes, our actions, the things we want to do or the things that we actually want to say. Now, our responses, whether physical or internal uh, to those irritating things that happen in our lives, I think it's a basic indicator that we actually need a change. 
that deep down on the inside, each and every one of us, that we actually need uh, to be transformed. Because um, there are desires that we have, passions that we have, reactions that we have that maybe we shouldn't do in the first place. Now, this transformation is only something that God can do within us. Now, I talked about a couple weeks ago how we sort of live in this self-help culture. Uh, we can go pick up a book that tells us how we can solve all of our problems. Uh, but as I said then, uh, there, is, there is no book out there that can solve the deep problem that each and every one of us deals with. And that is a sin problem. Uh, that is that deep down inside, we want to do what is contrary to what God would have us do uh, in our lives. Uh, and so God wants to change us. God wants to transform us on the inside. And so how we react on the outside is exactly how Jesus would respond in these various circumstances in our lives. But you see, when we think about it, I mean, who wants to change? So this inner transformation that happens within us, I mean, it should tell you that you're going to have to change in some way or another. Now, some of us, we don't like change because change makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable because maybe we see the direction that this change wants to take us and we don't like it. Uh, Or maybe when we think about change, maybe there's a lot of unknowns for us. We're not sure how life is going to look. And now for some of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, maybe when you think about change or think about an inner transformation, you know, maybe you think about, well, I don't want to stop doing this thing that God doesn't want me to do. I don't want to stop doing that. I'd rather keep doing that. But the change means that you end up that you quit doing that and end up following wherever God wants you to go and doing whatever he wants you to do. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you think, well, how is it? How is this change or this transformation going to change my relationships with God, my relationships with my friends, my relationships with my boyfriend or relationships with anybody else in your life. And so it's going to change a whole lot of things in our lives. But really, deep down, it's going to change our inner passions, our desires, and maybe the way that we respond uh, to the very circumstances that happen in our lives as well. Now, one of my professors, when I was getting my uh, master's degree uh, in seminary, there was one phrase that he said that really stuck out with me. And he said, He said, Jesus welcomes us to come as we are, but he does not welcome us to stay as we are. And so what that means, there's a lot of truth here. And what it means is that regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of what you will do in your life, that's contrary to what God wants you to do. He welcomes you just like that. But he doesn't welcome us to remain as we are, which means he desires to, to change us From the inside out, there's this radical transformation that he wants us, each and every one of us, to experience in our lives. Now, again, this isn't something you do by praying a certain amount of times a day. It doesn't. It's not how much good you can do to outweigh the bad in your life. It all has to do with relying on God to really change your heart, to change your desires, your passions, and to change those emotions and responses that we have to the things that irritate, especially the irritating things that happen in our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read a little bit about it uh, in Romans. And this is written by the Apostle Paul. And he's sort of talking about this inward uh, battle that happens within each and every one of us. And so we're going to read about it. uh, And then we'll talk a little bit more uh, more about what that means. Uh, So Larry, if you can uh, go through there, that'd be great. Okay, starting in verse uh, 21. That's what he says. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And then chapter eight, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law has, was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, uh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not uh, to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Uh, I consider, I might have gone a little bit too far here, actually. Actually, that's about as far as we want to go. Um, and so basically, uh, for the Apostle Paul here, he's talking again about this inward battle that we, that we have in each and every one of us. And one of the things that I want to focus on, he says, although I want to do good, Romans 7, 21 to 23, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging a war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And so at the beginning, again, we talked about the responses that we have to those things that, that really irritate us, that really get on our nerves, that really make us angry, that really cause us to have these emotions or responses that, again, if someone were to see your inward thoughts, they, you might be embarrassed or you might be a little ashamed about those things. Now, we might, again, if I have physical response, we might have a small bout of anger. We might get frustrated with a coworker. We might get frustrated with a spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or a family member. And so we, we have those emotions. So it's, not, it's, it's, also, it's a physical thing, but then it's also an internal thing as well, something that goes on in our minds or something that goes on in our hearts. Uh, you know, maybe, again, maybe you get angry on the inside. Maybe you lust after somebody else. Or maybe there are certain things you want to do or things that you want to say. Uh, that happen really internally. So it doesn't have to just be physical. But again, it points to a reality that there's a battle within us. 
that we may truly want to do good, but there's something that's deep within us that always wants to do what is contrary to what God wants us to do. And so that's the reality that Paul's really talking about here. The thing he's really pointing out is that in him, there is this battle going on. And in, in each and every one of us, there's this battle going on as well. And we're going to continue to sin because every time, you know, every time we're, we're given this opportunity to respond to something. So if something good happens to you or something bad happens to you, it's an opportunity for you to respond in a certain way. So you have a choice. You can respond in the way that Jesus would have you respond or you can respond in the way that is contrary to what God would have you do uh, in your life. Now, even though we know how Jesus would have us respond, if you are a follower of Jesus or you're thinking about it, you probably have some idea of how Jesus would respond in certain circumstances that you're facing. Uh, But we always, even though we know what to do, we still want to do what is contrary to that. We're always going to end up doing what we want to do anyway. And so there's this this idea that Paul talks about. Now, this is a a big word that some of you may, may be unfamiliar with. But it's this word called sanctification. Uh, It's a big, giant word, and we're going to kind of talk about really what that is, because that's really what he's talking about here. And this is something that we believe as an organization or as a denomination, that we believe that Jesus wants to work in each and every one of us, that he wants to change our desires, he wants to change our passions, he wants to change the way we respond to the various circumstances that we face in this life. And so to begin, what is it? What is sanctification? Well, basically it means just to be set apart from something. Uh, Namely, to be set apart from sin and then set apart to something else uh, to be set apart to God. And so we, we are separated from sin and then we are, have to be separated to something or, be, or point our lives to something. And namely, that is God uh, in our lives. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, this may not make sense to you. But hopefully as we, we go through it, hopefully it can ma- I can make more sense of it uh, for you. But when we look at the Old Testament, uh, we see a lot of things that were set apart. Another term is that they were made holy. All right? So there are different places in the Old Testament where... Uh, you know, God did something miraculous or did something special in those places. So people would name it after something God did there. And so those places were then made holy. Those things were made set apart. Um, and there are also days uh, like the Sabbath. So we often refer to that maybe as a Sunday for us where people rest. Um, that was set, God said to make, set that day apart uh, from every other day of the week. Because it was a very special day for people to worship God or to rest from work. And so it was a holy day. There were also people who were made holy or told to be holy. So the the Israelites were called to be holy because God himself is holier. God is perfect. Uh, But above all, the the main person in the Old Testament who was called holy or who was set apart uh, was God. God was said to be or God is said to be holy. God is said to be perfect. He's perfect in every way. So if you talk about God as love, God is perfectly loving toward us. If God is merciful, God is perfectly merciful towards us. And so any other characteristic you can think of God, uh, about of God, his perfect perfection comes first. Uh, so whatever else you talk about, put perfect in front of it, and that's what should describe God in each and every lives. That's how the Old Testament would describe God. Now, and then you get into the New Testament, and we're called to be holy. First uh, Peter, I don't have it up here, but First Peter 1, 15 through 16 uh, says that, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. 
Now, a lot of uh, the Jews in the Old Test- uh, in the New Testament believed that they were the only ones that God, they, they were the only ones to be, they were called God's people. But Jesus turned that around and Paul turned that around too and said, no, it's not just the Jews, but it's everybody else, the Gentiles, that Jesus came to save everybody, not just the Jews. And so when, it, when Peter tells us here to be holy, he's calling all people, not just Jewish people, to be holy, but he's calling each and every one of us to be holy, to be perfect uh, in our obedience to God uh, and everything that happens in our lives. So he calls us to be separated from sin uh, in our world. But then again, we have to be separated to something. So our lives got to point in a different direction. So if we, if we stop sinning, we stop doing what's contrary to what God wants us to do, we turn our lives sort of in a, a 180 uh, and turn in another direction. Uh, we're going towards something else. We're going towards God. Revelation 1.6 says, Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. So again, separated from sin, but then separated to something else. We're separated to God. Uh, to try in every, every area of our lives to do what God would have us do. Uh, and so really, again, what to be perfect or to be made holy really is to be made to look more and more like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean physically look like Jesus, uh, but really physically in the way we, we respond to other people or maybe the desires or the passions or emotions or attitudes that we have on the inside are the very things or the very ways that Jesus would respond as well. And so that's kind of in a nutshell what it is, but it's also a process. Now, this is something that occurs if you choose to become a follower of Jesus. This is what happens after you become a follower of Jesus. There's a different point in your life where the spirit of God or Jesus is not just living inside you, but also living through you. Uh, And so the way you live in the world, people can see Jesus at work in your life. Uh, you know, some Christians, uh, there's a lot of followers of Jesus who believe that once they become uh, Christians, uh, that they sort of arrived, that they sort of have all the knowledge that there is to have about God, that this holiness thing or this perfection thing that God calls us to is sort of just, they've, they've gotten all of that. So God doesn't want them to be any more perfect or be any more holy in their lives, that, they've, that that's it. You know, they become a Christian and, you know, get all this knowledge and then they don't get anything else. But we know that Jesus, throughout the New Testament, calls everybody to this radical transformation. Uh, So again, it's a process for each and every one of us. It happens after we become followers of Jesus. Now, some people refer to this sort of as like a crisis moment. So this is the words that they use. Now, for some people, it really is a crisis that happens. But in the crisis, what what they realize is that whatever it is that they're struggling with, usually it's a sin, Whatever it is that they're struggling with, that they realize that they can't fight it on their own. That they've consistently struggled against whatever it is that they're doing that's contrary to what God wants them to do. That they've continually lost that battle. That they continually can't get past it. Uh, you know, for me, you know, and I've, I've made, uh, I've alluded to this in the past, and so it shouldn't be a shock to anybody. Uh, but early on in my life, you know, pornography was a really, you know, a uh, big thing in my life. And Contrary to what our world says, uh, pornography, if you are a follower of Jesus, that's obviously something we're not supposed to be uh, partaking of, something that we're supposed to, it's not something we're supposed to be doing. Uh, But that was a a thing that really kept me from fully following God in my life. You know, when I became six, when I was 16 years old and I became a follower of Jesus, that was something, a sin that I continued to struggle with for about a year or two after that. Because I was still going on my own. I was still thinking, well, I can have more safeguards on my computer. I can quit looking at magazines. I can quit doing this or that. You know, so I thought I could do it all on my own. 
But I reached a point where I, where I realized, I was like, I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. I don't have the strength within me to, to keep fighting this because I kept failing and failing and failing and failing. I couldn't get rid of it. Uh, and so I went and I talked to one of the leaders of the church and uh, he really got me on track and told me, he's like, you know, you, you can't do it anymore. Uh, you've got to realize that it's Jesus who has paid the price for you. It's Jesus who died for your sins. But it's also Jesus who wants to work in you and work through you to purify your desires, to cleanse your desires, so that you're no longer wanting to do those things anymore. And thankfully, after that conversation, obviously it wasn't like instant. It wasn't like that all just went away. But again, it was a process. And at that point, I believe it was my crisis moment. It was that moment where I realized, like, I can't do it anymore. I realized that on my own, this sin can't be battled. And so for some of us, it might be a really hard thing. It might be a really hard sin that we deal with. But for other people, it might simply be just realizing that there are certain desires, that there are certain passions or uh, actions or responses that you have in your life that aren't exactly what Jesus would want you to do in the first place. Uh, or maybe it could be like in your mind just thinking, well, you know, maybe I should gossip about this person. Maybe I should lie about this so I can make myself look better. So it's all these little desires that we have within us. Uh, like I pointed out earlier, those things that irritate us, they're a really small basic indicator that we do need to be changed, that we do need to be transformed. And we can't change those desires or passions or attitudes on our own. It's something that Jesus has to do uh, within us. And so now what, is it, what does it really look like uh, in our lives? So we talk about looking like Jesus or, or becoming more and more like Jesus. And that seems like a really sort of abstract kind of thing. Like you don't, you can't really like put your finger on it or you can't really see it. Uh, but what, would it, what does it really look like? Uh, well, let me click on the next thing here. Well, in my, uh, a few years ago, there's a process I go through, I went through, it's called, it's called ordination. So this is where you become, I'm, my official title is reverend. And so if you want to call me something, you can call me that if you want to distinguish me and the doctor. Um, but reverend is my official term, uh, but I don't like being called that. So don't, don't call me that. Um, but throughout that process, you basically read a whole bunch of books and then you, it culminates in this uh, and you write a bunch of papers. And then it culminates in this three-hour interview that you have with six other uh, church leaders uh, not in your specific church, but all around the, um, a bunch of other group of churches. And you sit in a three-hour interview, they talk about you know, why you want to be a pastor, why you want to follow where God wants you to go. Uh, but there was one question that really stuck with me uh, from, from that point forward. I'm not sure if I have it up here, actually. Nope, I don't. Uh, but the question he, told me, he asked me was this. He says, how are you different today than when you first became a Christian? And so the answer I gave, you know, and Lauren may not remember this, but... When I was talking to them, I said, you know, my wife tells me that you're not as angry as, you're used to, as you used to be. So you know, I guess in some instances, you know, I would respond in certain ways where I maybe have a burst of anger. Or maybe I'd get really frustrated with something that was happening in our personal our, our, our relationship or with a job or something. But she said, you're not as angry as you used to be. And so what that means for each and every one of us is that, and this is a question you answer later in your small group time, is how are you different today than when you first became a follower of Jesus. There should be a change in your life. And if you haven't experienced this change, or you haven't started experiencing any kind of transformation, then this whole act of sanctification probably hasn't been at work in your life quite yet. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means that it hasn't happened or it hasn't occurred in your life. And so the reality is, is that the sanctifying work of God uh, has to take place in our life. So we have to experience some sort of change. And so it's not that we only notice it, 
You know, there's a lot of things we can say, well, yeah, I've changed in this way. But really, the, the great indicator is what people around you are saying about your life, how they see Jesus working through your life. Now, you read in like John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about uh, remaining in the vine, being attached to him, being in constant relationship with Jesus, that when we do that, we bear fruit. Okay? So that our outward actions or through our, what we say, what we do, our internal desires or passions, they all reflect what Jesus would have us do, how Jesus would respond, how Jesus, what Jesus would say, what Jesus would do. And so we'll bear fruit. Now, one of the things we, we read about in Galatians chapter 5 uh, is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, that's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, if you notice, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not fruits of the Spirit. So it's not individual little things in your life. So it does, it does, what that means is that you can't just say, well, I want to do this love thing. I love love, but I don't like being patient, right? This is a one-package deal. So that means that all of these characteristics should be evident in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect in all of those. That means that you're, it doesn't mean you're perfectly loving to other people. It doesn't mean you're perfectly patient with other people, but yet you have problems with being gentle with others in your words and in your actions. Each of those are going to be at different levels as you uh, follow Jesus. Uh, but they should all be evident in your life to some extent. And so we should be expressing those in our lives. And so in addition to that, it's not just that we express this fruit, but that we also have some power over sin. And so what that means is that uh, when temptations come your way, when there's an opportunity for you to respond in an angry way, to have an angry outburst, to be frustrated or whatever else, uh, that, you, uh, that, that it's easier to overcome. It's easier to respond in the way Jesus would have you respond in those instances. Uh, and so it makes temptation, temptations a lot easier for you to deal with. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, there'll be information for you if you choose to become one. But what do we have to do to experience sanctification or experience this process where God wants or Jesus wants to make us more and more like him? Well, the very first thing we have to do is we have to surrender. Now, that sounds like, uh, you know, I guess in our, in, our, in our culture, we have like a surrender has bad connotations. Because when we surrender, it usually is, it means it's a bad thing. You've lost the battle. That means that you are weak. But in the Jesus world, in the Jesus way, being weak is actually very good. Because when we're weak, Jesus' power can be made known in our lives. Jesus' power can be seen a lot more easily if we surrender our entire lives over to God. So it sounds bad in our culture, but for Jesus, it's good to be weak. You know, he tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, uh, that we have to surrender our bodies or to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices so that God can transform our minds and transform our hearts as well. So this process can actually happen in our lives. And so we have to surrender. The second thing is that we have to accept. We have to accept that Jesus is the only person through the work of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, that can work in us to change our desires, to change our passions, to change the way we would respond in certain situations in our lives. So we've got to accept that he's the only one that can do that in our lives. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So again, it's moving ourselves aside and allowing Jesus to live in us and also live through us as well. And then we have to abide. And I said that word earlier. And it's just remaining. In con- that means remain in constant relationship with Jesus. Uh, so that means that whether through prayer time or through a Bible reading or through quiet time or fasting or whatever else, 
We've got to remain in constant relationship with Jesus. Just like every relationship we have in our lives, whether that's with a family member, whether that's with a friend or a spouse, a boyfriend or girlfriend, to get to know them better, you have to spend time with them. And so it's important for us, if we want to experience this, is that we have to remain in, or want to remain in constant relationship with Jesus to get to know him a lot better. But the bottom line is, is that we, we have to want this uh, transformation to happen in our lives. Uh, I think I've got it up there. Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so we have to want this transformation to happen in our lives. We have to want this change to occur in our lives. Uh, but the adverse is also true. If we don't want it, God is not going to give it to us. He's not going to allow that process to unfold if we don't want it. So we have to want that transformation to take place in our lives. Because again, it's only Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, who can really transform our desires and really transform our hearts. 